Who are we? Why are we here? Year in review? No. No, year in review sucks. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handle off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. From inside the centre square. Welcome to episode 144 of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm your host, Ethan Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California. I am your host, Benjamin Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California. Yeah, year in review stuff is just really tedious and never feels like there's actually any effort put into it. And also, I feel like it's mostly just like rehash stuff because you can't come up with anything. Exactly, to, to fill time in that weird area between Christmas and the New Year itself, when all the other stations on your network are airing just like whatever bowl game it is. Well, since we're here, though, we are going to do something that's kind of reflection-y. It's actually really something that I came up with. So I've seen, you know, all sorts of Instagram graphics and stuff and thought of an idea for a fun one. Basically just the best player with each jersey number or Guernsey number or jumper number. Anyway, just the best player by number. So we went through and came up with our own rankings. We just picked them ourselves. No math to it, just vibes. Vibes only. And yes, it is possible to go through all of 1 to 50. Round 20 enabled that. Every number was represented at the AFL level in 2023. We were relieved by that because there was a chance we were going to have like nobody and we would have had to come up with something for the graphic for that spot. Like, I don't know, Graggle. Mr. All Teams Should Merge? Nah, Graggle. It's Gragglin' time. Sure is, son. Two minutes into this episode, we're already talking Graggle. This is going to be good. But yeah, we're going to answer a bunch of questions such as what, you know, who's the best player to wear this number and that number and that number? Why do they call it oven when you oven the cold food? Why do they call it oven when you oven the cold food about how to eat the food? And most importantly, we are going to finally investigate 311. Now, of course, we're going to go through these jumper numbers in a logical order. The two-digit sequences within the digits of pi. So beginning with number 31. Then number 14, then 41, then 15, and so no, what? No, 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 no. 31, 41. I guess we got to skip 59, so 26. Okay, really, though, numerical order makes way too much sense here. I like the other idea better, though. I don't think we're going to do it with, like, a gematria value thing. Fuck. What other... We're, we're just going in order, though. Yeah, what other, like, weird systems could we c come up with? Yeah, I think Gematria is definitely the one. Except come up with, like, different number values than logical ones. Like, you know, through a different alphabet or something. Or maybe we just, like, don't do base 10? Was it the Mayans that had base 20? I forget. Yeah, I want to say the Mayans are base 20. There's some weird number systems in, like, Myanmar or Burma. Right, their old dictator was obsessed with the number nine, and he kind of tanked their currency with it, too. We could make this really interesting and go Babylonian style with sexagesimal. 16? Base 60. This is going to be a sensible episode. I have this whole, like, long-listed, short-list document that we have up of all the jumper numbers and things like that, and I took way too much notes for this. The, the page count on this Google Doc is 15. Yeah, it's good. It's going to be a nice... Healthy, rational, principled episode with nowhere near enough detail. Just general observations only. No no detail. So, really though, shall we start? Yeah. You were pretty adamant about number one. Yeah, I said needed to be Adam Trelore. We also talked about Stephen May, Nick Blostone, and Chad Warder, but I, I really campaigned hard for Trelore. Hard to leave out May with the, the type of season he had as well. I feel like Trelaw is honestly like the best supporter to the supporter in any midfield in the league. I think that's a superlative we can give him. 
because the, the hierarchy in the Bulldogs midfield very clearly goes Bontempelli, then Liberatore, then Trelor, but that's a damn good third spot to have. And you could tell when he was off the over, when he wasn't getting the ball enough or was playing weirdly out of position because Luke Beveridge. Yeah, I mean, this is the guy who also had Bailey Smith playing like as a wing. He had Jack McRae playing at full forward at times. You know, just because moving Ed Richards and Caleb Daniel work doesn't mean it works for everybody. Moving Ed Richards totally worked, though. I, w- I will say that instead of just turning this into us, like, bagging on Luke Beveridge for, like, the 50 billionth time. I-, I feel like we've done that enough anyway, and we will continue to do it into 2024, of course. Trelor just, I don't think, got all that much respect or notice because of the hierarchy of the dog's midfield, but finished six of the club best and fairest averaging 29 disposals and nearly 12 contested possessions a game. You look back at the good form they had at the start of the season, the tight win against Richmond in the rain in round four, the smashing of the Dockers in round six, and Trelore was right there among the best players both times. He only got four Brownlow votes for the year, which I think just goes to show how difficult it is for supporting players to get votes on a team like that. I'm sorry, but when you said smashing, I, I hope you know what I'm thinking of. There are multiple things I can think of. Nigel Thornberry. Ah, good reference. Do Australians know that one? I feel like they've at least seen the gif. It'd be hard not to. Nigel Thornberry honestly almost looks like a ginger Waluigi. Never saw it before. Different body type, but in the face, okay. I'm glad that I have caught on to this at some point. So I guess what's the, the solution for Trelor for next year? Just kind of more of the same? I mean, I guess a magnified role with Bailey Smith out? Yeah, just uh, stay on the field. Don't get hurt. He played 19 games last year, Trelor did. And yeah, that that's one of the biggest pieces of news to come out of the pre-Christmas training block. Bazlenka out for the year with a torn ACL. The other big one was uh, Dan McStay, I believe. Yeah, that's, that's so rough for, for McStay. Missing out on the grand final and now missing all the next season as well with injury. Number two felt like a pretty obvious one, that being Jordan Degoe. Despite having that three-game suspension for concussing Elijah Hewitt in round 12, he seemed to be a pretty clear winner there. And when push came to shove in finals time, he was also one of their best good performances in both the prelim and the grand final. There are certain types of players who, even if they don't put up huge stats, you can just categorize as game-breakers. I think Dugowie can easily be categorized as one of those with his speed, how tough he is to bring down, and his long kicking ability. Dugowie and another player that we're going to mention for Colin, what I find similar in that respect, and both of them came up big in finals, which makes sense. Yeah, I think, you know, there's always been this cloud over him with his off-field behavior, which has been better lately, which is nice to see. Combine that with the on-field performance, even with the time he was suspended, He's had a hell of a year and deserves to be celebrated for his accomplishment. Top 10 in the club, best and fairest, still despite missing those games, and got three Brownlow votes once, that being in the opening round win over Geelong. You probably don't want to recall that game. I remember he was pretty good that night. My my memories of that game are minimal, especially because we're like nine months out. But three goals, 25 disposals, three assists as well, just kind of all over the place like you would expect to go in and be at his best. Number three, we had a really good debate over. I think number three may have had the most nominees for us, at least on the long list. Yeah, number three and then also number 10. Yeah, this was this was a good debate. I made a case for a couple of different candidates in Stephen Canelio and Jai Newcomb. Others who did not get it. Uh, we talked about Joe Danaher for Darcy Parrish in there. Dion Prestia, Isaac Quainer, who was one of the best one-on-one defenders all year, Christian Salem, Harry Sheasel. But ultimately, Benjamin made a more compelling argument, and we went with Caleb Sirach. This is like one of the only true three-horse races I think we had with Cornelio Newcomb and Sarong. But the kind of transcendent play in the midfield that Andrew Brayshaw had at times last year, Sarong consistently had that. Finished top 10 in the Brownlow despite having a one game suspension for a really soft tackle, won his club best and fairest for the first time, and was arguably the best contested player in the league, 
and up there at center bounces in particular with Tom Green. Yeah, this was one of those that made you consider, like, should, you know, a one-game suspension like that disqualify you from winning the Brown low? Or, I mean, I think it just shouldn't have been a suspension, but if, you know, a pretty marginal one like that getting in force, I feel like that's kind of against the spirit of, you know, the idea of what the Brown low is supposed to, like, keep out. I feel like it's more against the spirit of this kind of natural review. I'm not sure. We came into the season talking about Andrew Brayshaw on the midfield, and it came to the point pretty quickly in the season that Sarong ended up being the top candidate to be tagged. In a group with Brayshaw and Fife in there and a couple other strong players, Sarong was the focus, and he eviscerated Geelong. Yeah, um, not putting a tag on him was a mistake. Did they not put a tag on him in the second game either? No. In the... Round 10 meeting, he kicked his first goal of the season, had 28 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 10 clearances, 9 tackles, got the free Brown low vote, and even got the rare best on ground in a losing effort later on the season against Brisbane of all teams. I'm not sure if you remember this game much either, but this was... No, that was one of the games that I still have yet to watch. I've got like three or four games <laughs> that over the course of the offseason I'm going back to watch. I never really got them in full. They're all from later rounds, and that is one of them. Yeah, but Saron beat out Neil, etc. Everyone on the winning side with just another monstrous center of the ground game to get the best on ground there. And when you average nearly 31 disposals and over seven and a half clearances from the game, it's hard to ignore a performance like that. We could go through the stats for the others as well, but in terms of where Frio finds themselves now. I One of my bigger fears for them is that they're going to waste Sarong with just the start to a career he's had really emerging this year. Of all the teams that we looked at in terms of the trade period, we labeled Frio as the biggest losers. And they were pretty big losers a year earlier, too. So how much of a reset are they willing to do? They changed around some of the leadership within their football department, but nobody really going away. I mean, sometimes stuff like that works. Here's a question. How long of a leash do you think Justin Longmere has? I don't know. I thought he did such a good job in 22. And I think so much more of their struggles have been on list management than they've been on Longmere himself. And it's puzzling because they have had much more trouble keeping around players from the East than the Eagles have, even when the Eagles' results have slipped. I'm going to make the Chaps Chat Cats reference. The culture. The culture. That culture. That's what it's all about. Oh, see that? Yeah. That's the way to do it. That's old school. Yeah. <laughs> no school like the old school. Okay. Um, Number four, both the All-Australian captain and vice captain wore that number. So we kind of lose either way. There were a lot of really, really good candidates for number four. But the top ones were those two at the very top. Um, if, other, we, if, we, if, if we had to go third place, I would that would be a good debate. Kyle Langford. Langford, Sean Darcy, Todd Marshall, Braden Maynard, Dusty. But the, the obvious top two are Bond and Toby Green. Very hard to separate them because they're so different players and so different leaders as well. We were questioning whether or not Toby Green would even work as a sole captain, and um, he proved us wrong there. I don't know the last time he wasn't even suspended for a game in the season. I didn't think there was much of a debate here with respect to all the other candidates. It's Bond. It's Marcus Bond and Pelly over Toby Green. Arguably should have won the Brownwell, won the Lee Matthews Trophy for the second time, was named best captain over Toby. And this is another case where kind of the team around him failed. In any sort of system where you're just, you know, voting for the MVP instead of on like a, you know, per game basis, if you're just voting overall MVP, it's it's Bond. Hence the Lee Matthews. Yeah. Which, if you may remember, I think very early this year was mentioned on a Jeopardy clue. I think so, yeah. I posted this to r slash AFL. It was like, the Lee Matthews Award is given to, to the MVP, uh, most valuable player in the AFL. This but it also talked about Lee Matthews as being a Brisbane premiership coach rather than his amazing playing career, which 
makes very little sense there. Well, I think playing for a team with a city name gives a, a more of a clue to an American audience. I guess. I, for some reason, I thought AFL would give away enough, but... Oh, no, trust me. And there are things that people should know on Jeopardy that they don't. Americans are stupid. I mean, so are other places, too. And I guess Canadians, because some Canadians are on Jeopardy. Yeah. They're like our dumb hat. Pharrell's hat? Canada's a hat, you know? Okay, I'm just thinking of Pharrell's hat that looks like he's a Mountie. It's hard to pick out just one or two elite performances from Baltapelli, but the Thursday nighter over the Lions in round three was not just Artie Jones' debut. 28 disposals, 16 contested, 8 clearances, 7 inside 50s, 6 tackles, and a best-on-ground performance. That's just kind of the ability he had to take over a game despite having all the attention on him. How much do you think having Libertore and Trelore in there kind of muddied some game plans, though, and made it you know a bit difficult? I mean, clearly it's more difficult to isolate him than if you have that sort of supporting cast. How much credit should we be giving them for kind of supporting the season Baltipelli at. I still think just watching him on an individual level, he stood out above even those guys. Oh, yeah, he's the first guy on every team's game plan, and he still was the best player damn near every night. And he also has shown the past couple of years more forward 50 ability because he was trialed at half forward and full forward at times these past couple of years when Libertori was at his most dominant, and it did work out. I imagine you'll see less of that, though, with... Bazlanka out in 2024. For American audiences, think of Bonjampelli as what if Mike Trout or Connor McDavid actually won one championship? Yes, it's great that he actually got the one, but it's still a letdown that it's only one. Number five, Christian Petraka. Other candidates were Jeremy Cameron, Adam Chera, Josh Dunkley, Isaac Heaney, Dan Houston, Lockie Schultz. That's how you pronounce it, people. Schultz. People will learn just how good Lockie Schultz is if they don't already now that he is in Victoria. Really, the top candidate, along with Petraka, would have been Dunkley, and credit to Houston as well for his All-Australian season and late-game heroics. But this was the type of season where I, why I, for a good part of it, expected Petraka to crack the podium in the brown low, if not win it. And then Jack Viney said, fuck that. Petraka... If he, if he has one downside, it's that he still isn't super clean in terms of a kick for goal, but he can do just about everything else. And in a year where Clayton Oliver missed a lot of time, and we wonder if that may continue with his ongoing struggles off the field, Petraka was another one of those guys who was at the top of game plans and still broke open so many of them. Would it be correct to call Clayton Oliver the main character of the offseason? I think thus far, Oliver is the main character of the, of the offseason. I think that's fair. I guess the, the pre-Christmas main character. Or, I mean, who else would he put as a nominee? I guess Jack Ginevan. I guess Bailey Smith. Well, Ginevan was more trade, period. Yeah, is that separate? Do we make that separate? I, I think so. I think if it's trade, period, then I think, what, Ginevan beats out Adrian Dodoro? Yeah. Petraka, I've looked this up, he is the only player to record 20 Brownlow votes in each of the last four seasons. That includes 2020, mind you, which makes it an even more impressive feat. And had a couple key scoring performances, even when he wasn't a super accurate kick again. Kicked 28 goals, 34 behinds for the year, but had four goal performances back-to-back -back against the Saints and the Lions round 18. And we marked that Lions game as one of the best of the year, and it was a shame that the crowd was so small for it. If there was one like home and away game that didn't involve Collingwood that I would recommend to Americans to watch this year to get a real feel for the game, I would say that round 18 game against Brisbane, which was the late Jake Melksham winner. Yeah, that didn't involve Collingwood or like an after the siren winner. I mean, I mean, there was just Houston. Yeah, but throwing in, you know, like an after the siren game is honestly like Melksham good. Melksham was close. That was the last minute still. Yeah, but I think you know, whenever you want to show someone like the sport at its peak. I don't think you go to the most dramatic finish right away. You just go to a well-played, balanced game like that. I like, by the way, how the D's won the million dollars and said, all right, our work is done here. Straight sets in the men's and the women's. I feel like we need like like a Brett Favre if it's not about the money clip here, which is... I was thinking the uh, 
kingpin is not about the money. It's not always about the money, Spider-Man. But also, you know, with Brett Favre, it's even funnier now. Uh, that is true. But is it about the Mets? It is. It's about the Mets, baby. Love the Mets. All right, baby. Let's go get a home run, baby. Love the Mets. Let's go Mets. I feel like out of, you know, the midfield Brownlow contender group, Petraga and Bontepelli are the two that, that maybe Americans would kind of spot right away because they do venture forward a decent amount. I think he, they might even spot them before Nick Dacos, even with all the commentary focusing around Dacos. Yeah, you know, here's here's a fun thing we could try. Watch a game on mute and, you know, you see like what you judge out of the game versus what you judge with commentary. Although I will say you do miss some important stuff then, you know, finding out things about injuries, stuff like that. But it would be interesting. Oh, also just like, what school a lot of these guys played at because BT loves that. The the key, though, if you were to do it, do it with a Kelly Underwood game. The orange team. I don't like harping on broadcasters, but that was necessary. I mean, at least no broadcaster had like one soup, like abysmal drug Dan McLaughlin level performance this year. Or a Tom Bradman. The footy capital of the world. <laughs> should I Should I leave that in? I like that. That was good. That was good. <laughs> now, at the start of the year, if you said somebody who was suspended twice would be on this sort of list, you would have said, oh, Toby Green. Nope. James Sicily. Also a captain, though. Yes. A first-year captain, although he stood in a lot in 2022 when Ben McAvoy was hurt. So maybe we should have seen it coming a bit more. I didn't see just how sound his leadership was. I think his absence, though, was about as obvious as any defender in the league. Oh, yeah. Because I, I believe the Hawks went 0-4 without him. Yeah, 7-12 and with him, so that, that would be the story there. Sicily averaging 10 marks at 26 disposals a game, along with 6 rebound 50s. Just very good at getting the ball out of fence to clean spots, despite being the obvious most important man in the back six for Hawthorne whenever he's on the oval and he hardly ever goes off. There was only one game that I can think of where he was neutralized in any respect whatsoever, and it was kind of the reverse tag that the Saints put on him in round 20. I wonder, I would go back to that game and just have coaches part through that and see, you know, how viable is this for these top defenders to put on a tag like that? Could that work on, say, Tom Stewart? I love the idea of the reverse tag tagging the tagger. I think I I think I brought up before the idea of just like a whole tag conga line, basically. I, I think you have. Yeah, like, it could be like this, like um, Marcus Windhayer tagging Willem Drew and somebody else tagging him at a human send tag peed. Oh, gosh, I'm not photoshopping that. Or am I? Cuttlefish and asparagus. I was thinking of like, you know, the animal that eats its own tail or whatever. I know there's one in Harry Potter. There's some sort of mythological thing like that. Or is it is it in, in Norse mythology as well, where there's like when the serpent releases its tail, that's when the apocalypse begins or something. There are like there is a type of lizard that does this or doesn't like eat it, but like curls up into a ball like that. Uh, OK, yeah. The uh, Ouroboros. But yeah, um, I'm I'm all in favor of the human send tag peed. But seriously, like, I think the reverse tag, like tagging a defender needs to be some of its more common. We thought for a while this year the tag in general was a lost start, and I'm glad that that's not the case. And I think Hawthorne's a team to focus on those terms. By the way, those suspensions from Sicily blemishes on what otherwise were his two best games of the year. And they won both of those games. That was one of those, you know, that was that was like a very Wario, I won, but at what cost moment. The huge comeback against the Saints in round 11 with a career-high 43 disposals, and if I'm reading this correctly, 22 intercepts and 16 marks. That's right. I, I remember, like, after that game, like, wait, no, those numbers have to be, like, that's cap. On God, for real, for real. No cap, vibes only. He was suspended for striking Anthony Caminiti then, and then after beating the Brisbane Lions two rounds later, he had just come back from suspension, another great performance. He concussed Hugh McCluggage in a tackle and was out for three more. The price the Hawks had to pay this year, I guess. Along with a couple other people on this list, Sicily was one of the most reliable one-on-one defenders in the league. And with 
his value being so apparent when he wasn't in. I'm glad he got that first All-Australian selection. Other top candidates for number six really was the guy that he tackled, Hugh McCluggage. And I guess third, probably Tom Mitchell or Lockie Whitfield. I think Jai Caldwell. Caldwell had like a very good patch around the midway to two-thirds point of the season. I think Whitfield was just underrated in comparison to a lot of the Giants this year. Still a really steady back half player. And Mitchell's end of the season was about as strong as anyone. And he had a couple three-vote games that kind of that helped keep the Brownlow away from his teammate. Number seven was another one of those tough two-way battles. Yeah, it was a pretty simple debate. Josh Dacos and Jack Viney also did mention Liam Baker, Zach Merritt, and Isaiah Wagonine Miller, but there were two pretty obvious candidates that we debated between. Yeah, those other three just kind of on the long list there. Loved Baker's year, and he, I believe he re-upped with Richmond, so he's staying over there. Dacos, one of the best wings of the league, and made the All-Australian team. Viney made the squad, but not the team itself. Finished tied for seventh of the Brownlow, just two votes below Petraka, which I would not have expected the start of the season, a career year at age 29. And we ended up going Viney on this one. Yeah, I think I pushed for Viney more. I think this was one of the ones where you ended up having the, the stronger feelings about it. It's another case where without Oliver, he shined even more. He stepped up at the stoppages along with Petraka. He often fed out to Petraka. Towards the end of the year, he really started just doing his own thing much more and really started taking over again those games without Oliver. He was super important. Best on ground in the King's birthday game. He won the Neil Danaher trophy for that one with a 19 contested possession, 11 tackle and nine clearance performance. And he pulled the maximum of three votes in seven games this year, which tied him for the most of the league. And most of those were towards the back half of the season. Uh, Yeah, starting with five of the seven started from the King's birthday. Or the um, the pointy end. Yeah, they. I've noticed they say that a lot in Australia. It's a good term. Yeah, so round 13, 16, 19, that tough game against the Crows was another one that I really noted there. And then each of the last two games as well. It's pretty clear that even with Oliver out, it was not the midfield that was Melbourne's undoing. No, it was defense. It was a lack of flexibility and creativity at the forward positions. It was never a midfield issue, honestly. Yeah, I mean, the defense, not as good as in years past in September. Expected more in particular out of Jake Lever in the finals and didn't quite get it. And was wanting to see maybe Ben Brown get back in come finals. Didn't happen there. They just kind of reverted to the bombing at long that had not served them well in 2022 finals or rough points here in 2023. And it didn't make sense considering the movement that it worked all season. I think Simon Goodwin and company kind of outfought themselves. Really looking forward, though, in the forward line to year two, Jacob Van Royen. Yeah, I don't. He's a guy that, you know, I don't think of as like, oh, yeah, there's going to be a real sophomore slump here. He just caught on very quickly, was very fluid, and unless you completely ignore someone else to sell out on stopping him, good luck. Would definitely help to have, you know, another strong support there, a better season out of Brown, for example. I feel like if we get heat on any one of these early numbers, it's going to be number eight, because if you look at the jumper numbers themselves, you'd think, okay, James Robottom's near there, Andrew Brayshaw is there as well. If it were last year, it would certainly have been Brayshaw. Fuck it, Will Ashcroft. Yeah, this was one that I think you had the stronger argument than I did. And I think a lot of this is relative to 2022. Brayshaw definitely had regressed. Even though a lot of his numbers statistically were similar, the focus was more on Sarong, and I thought of Brayshaw as more of a fantasy accumulator. Whereas Ashcroft was another one of those just really strong depth pieces with enough of a forward touch that he was able to break out. Someone like, like they almost had another player kind of similar to Zach Bailey in a way who was even smoother in the midfield. And when you have as loaded the midfield as the Lions already had with Lockie Neal and Josh Dunkley, it's easy to overlook Ashcroft also when he tore his ACL late on in the year. Um, he's going to be ready for the start of next season. What's his, what's his timetable like? I don't think he's going to be ready in time for March because that would be under eight months. It was late July, I believe, that he ruptured his ACL, so probably around the midpoint 
But year two, Will Ashcroft, year two, Jasper Fletcher, combined with everything else the Lions already had, is nightmare fuel for a lot of coaches. I mentioned how clean he was. How about 19 free kicks for to just four against for a first-year player? And I don't remember him getting like a bunch of shit calls. No, he doesn't play in Victoria. He also kicked goal of the year against Frio in round seven, kind of brought it down, karate kicked it. Like Daniel Wells, but also in the corner and inside of the boot. I'm glad that one. I hope it was a landslide. And that was one of his best games all around, too. We got the three votes there. As a forward, two goals of behind, 28 disposals, seven marks, seven score involvements, and an assist. He also was tremendous in round two, the lights out game. Oh, no. Oh, no. A goal of behind, 31 disposals, 15 contested possessions, nine clearances, five score involvements, an assist, and three free kicks for without giving one up. But I was going back through these stats this year. Some of the, the free kick numbers really drew my attention. And for a first year player to have that, you know, no reputation buoyed him there. He just stayed super clean with the ball, and I would understand a bit of a slump just coming back from the ACL, but he's not going to be the primary focus of any game plan. It's going to be Neil and Dunkley ahead of him. Still have not heard back from Dunkley, by the way. He was in San Francisco recently. Yeah, stop ghosting us. Of all the footy players to meet up with Steph Curry and exchange uniforms, I did not expect Dunkley. I mean, you would have expected like a Dacos or Neil or Bont first. And then you could have worked your way down. I mean, Dunkley's in that, like, next tier, but he would not have been, like, the first Brisbane Lion I would have thought of. Like, A tier, not S tier. Yeah. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Okay, with just how long these things have gone here, I think it was necessary to throw in a break there. Um, This is the time, I guess, where we need to plug things. Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter, at Castle Media. I'm at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is next to Ethan right now. He's at cat named Grind on Instagram. Collectively, we're both on Twitter and Instagram at Americans Footy. Really looking to increase some of our Instagram presence for the 2024 season. So where were we? We just finished talking about Will Ashcroft as maybe a bit of a surprise number eight. And uh, let's keep going with the lines here, I guess, because you got to fit in the Bradlow medalist somehow. Yeah, um, Rory Sloan, Luke Davies, Uniac, Jack Steele, and Zach Butters. Butters the, so considered, but... Butters the clear second here. You know, you're not just looking at this immediate year. You're looking at big picture, and it's it's got to be Neil. I mean, this is primarily for this season, and just think about the long list, it's disappointing that Davies Uniac was injured for a good portion of the year, but Neil remains the number one clearance player in the league, averaging nearly eight a game. And as strong as Brisbane move, Brisbane's movement was all year, it starts with him. And I find it insane just how effective he is, despite being, honestly, a pretty bad kick for goal, if I do have to say that. Yeah. Kicked three goals 11 this year. Won the Brownlow. Like, I, I forget who it was that bemoaned the fact that he like didn't take a contested mark or something and still won the Brownlow. I think that might be the more damning statistic. And we can talk, of course, about whether or not Neil was the right Brownlow winner in the first place. Yeah, that's a whole different argument, and I think that would require like some pretty thorough auditing of votes in different games. Hey, Michael Pell isn't an umpire anymore. That helps. The first Q clash, round 10 against the Suns, he was phenomenal. 35 disposals, 16 contested possession, 10 clearances, including 8 from center, 9 score involvements, 8 marked, 7 intercepts, and assists. He did win the Marcus Ashcroft medal for that game. There are some times where you don't see that, where, you know, somebody wins it despite not getting the three Brownlow votes, or I guess the other way around. Yeah, that one, that was really, like, one of the easier decisions to make. Kept it going late into the year as well. The win at Collingwood, which only happened because it was at Marvel, was another one of those, a double-digit clearance game there, and another the next round against the Saints as well. 
I find it interesting, but also sensible that both of these top midfielders, top Brownlow getters, and him and Bonzapelli are at the top of very stacked midfields. It's not like you could just say, oh, tag him and problem solved, unless you've got Tuke Miller to tag him. I think that's the one game where we could say, Neil, relatively disappointed. That's because you had one of the other best players in the league claiming him down. Also, the new leadership responsibilities didn't face him as well. This was his first year as co-captain. There are cases where people get promoted to those leadership positions and it has a real effect on them where you can tell there's like something taken away from their on-field performance because of the extra off-field responsibilities. Not the case with Neil, not the case with Sicily, Toby Green, etc. But there is one player in 2023, though, a new captain who I can say definitely did have that sort of backslide and has me thinking that. That being Alex Pierce. But Frio has a lot of defensive questions aside from him anyway. Number 10 was another one of the longest lists we had. Our long list had eight on it. Oh. And I guess the podium, aside from our winner, would have been Mitch Owens and Agus Brayshaw. I mean, our love for Mitch Owens has been very, very apparent these past couple years. Yeah, very quickly became one of my favorites. Totally changed my perception of the Saints, as we've discussed. To the point that you gave him a nickname. Pepper. Explain. Michito. Shishido. Is Mitch Owens also spicy like one-tenth of the time? I think he's spicy more than that. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that detracts from the nickname a little bit, but yes, Mitch Owens. Hopefully you learned his name this year if you hadn't already, but he's not the winner. The winner is, of course, Scott Pendlebury. That's not a very hard decision. Does Scott Pendlebury age? What is his secret? Uh... And it's not just I play for Collingwood. There's got to be something else there. The blood of infidels? Never heard him uvulate. I don't know. 383 games, age 35, still belongs in the midfield, has been moved around to halfback, kind of playing there along with Nick Dacos for 2022 and early on this season, but he still belongs in the center of the ground. At the end of his career, even Joel Selwood, like his value is much more intangible stuff than on-field performance, or as Pendlebury, it's still, you know, on the actual, measurable, quantifiable on-field stuff. Yeah, I mean, Selwood was managed a decent amount those final couple years. Pendlebury pretty much only kept out because of an eye injury, I believe. He's one of the most durable players in the league. He's going to hit 400, barring a disaster in 2024, and he could gun for Brent Harvey's record if he really wants to. Is he going to hit 433? I don't know. I think 400 seems... Almost like a foregone conclusion. 433, I don't know. That would require like playing almost every game each of the next two years if they make the grand final. And I'm not sure if he's keen on playing through age 38. But he's got the ability. He broke the disposal record this year, recorded disposals anyway, in round 17. Unfortunately, they did not stop the game for that and give him some sort of like, like give him the share-in or a certificate. Yes, he needed the certificate like the Drew Brees one, which still one of my favorite stupid things that ever happened. It was like giving a kid a perfect attendance certificate. Now I'm thinking of the, um, who was the Falcons running back who had a thousand yards and then lost it? Uh, Dave Hampton. Like that, like the disposal record's not one that you're going to lose like that. You can't get like numbers taken off you that easily. Or it's like you can lose yards. That would be fun if you could somehow have an... What would a negative disposal look like? Just taking the ball, having a teammate just, like, take the ball back from you, like, like rip it out of your hands, or would it have to be, like, an own goal? Like, the time, I think it was Liam Stalker accidentally scored a goal on his own posts, and it was ruled a behind because it's an own goal doesn't exist. It should exist. It should. It'd be more fun if it did. I've always contended that in soccer, an own goal should be counted as a negative goal on your record. I mean, if it's a deflection, you know, not all own goals are created. I, I mean, some some of those deflections aren't even given as own goals. Yeah, some of them they're honestly like pretty harsh on. But there are there are some there are some that need to be uh, you know like really laughed at more. I think the finals, perf- if it wasn't already clear that Pendlebury won it from the home and away season, the performances he had in both the prelim and the grand final solidified it. A goal off twenty four disposals. Seven score involvement, six clearances, and five marks in the grand final itself. And I love that goal because it was his first grand final goal, despite playing in, I think, what was that, his fifth? Counting the replay. And nobody saw it coming because people thought, oh, Bobby Hill's going to go back for another. Yeah, it was like very much 
one of those, you know, captain's goal type things, even though he's no longer captain. Yeah. And that captaincy transition obviously was quite smooth. Which politician is going to try to get Darcy Moore to be a speechwriter? Ooh, good question. Or are they just going to try to convince Darcy to run himself? Like, if there's any current player that I would expect, like, to be recruited by major parties to be an MP once his playing career is done, I think it would have to be Darcy Moore. He's the first one that comes to mind. I could maybe think about this for a while and come up with others. Number 11 was kind of a no-brainer, honestly. This is one where, like, within the past year, you know, it's one of those availability is the best ability kind of being what makes this more of a no-brainer. The first guy who comes to mind is the one who gets it here in Max Gone. In most W's, you'd have Tuke Miller being a contender right with him, but Miller's hamstring injury definitely, well, hamstrung him. But even with the couple games that he missed, Gone was the clear pick here. Who knows? Do you think he would have been an All-Australian selection had he stayed healthy the whole way through? I mean, I don't think he was the best ruck in the league, that, yeah. being, that being Tim English. That was Tim English. But still proved himself valuable all over the ground, that extra man in defense when necessary, and one of the most capable rucks outside the main contest. Other players who deserve a mention for being good, but not quite into the conversation, Tim Kelly, Jack McRae, Daniel McStay, Connor Nash, Tom Papley. Connor Nash, we were to really appreciate this year. And Tim Kelly, club best and fairest for the Eagles, did everything he could on a shit team and still got pummeled. And even when Gone went up against English, I'll say, he had a good performance, that opening round win over the Bulldogs. Are the D's playing the Dogs round one again this year? Uh, let me check. I think they are. Well, first they play in this opening round. And then, yep, they play him at the G. Yeah, that's a uh, Sunday afternoon at the G. Like NFL-style kickoff there. Interesting. Oh, yeah, that's right. Game times are going to be a little bit different this year. It's going to be weird to get. It's going to take some getting used to. Yeah, that's like a 1 p.m. local kick. I'm saying kick because I'm just so used to 1 p.m. being an NFL fight. Yeah. But God played up to the competition this year. That round 18 game against the Lions had another one of his best performance, getting 39 hitouts against Oscar McInerney and contributing a goal at 10 clearances as well. And not afraid to do work below his knees either. Seven tackles in that game. There's one big zero on his stat sheet still. Bounces. Is he the eternal captain of the no-bounce team? He has to be. It would be really funny, though, if, like, you know, the very end of his career. I think I've had this discussion at the very end of his career. Like, if he's, like, getting set to take a free kick and then just bounces it. Like, just, just for shits and giggles. Like, like they don't make finals, so, like, round 24 is a send-off game. He, he's carrying the ball at the end, like, a second before the siren. Boop. Yes. <laughs> that's That's exactly how it needs to happen. I don't think anybody would get more of a kick out of it than AFL Central. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I think you have other number 11s. My, my Tim Kelly appreciation has grown so much this past year, but gone is the clear winner. Really disappointed that Miller missed so much time. It was my preseason Brownlow pick. Did you pick Neil? Did I? I think you did. I think I did. Number 12, we had a bit of debate over. I think there would be a different winner at the halfway point of the season compared to the end. About halfway through, we were talking about Jordan Dawson as being a top Brownlow candidate, maybe. And he did still finish with the most votes among Crows, I believe. No, he actually tied with Rory Laird at 20. It's not like he had a bad end of the year. He was just quieter. Quieter where he was on another level at the start of things. You think about having a good performance at the first showdown, somehow getting not only the showdown medal, but three votes. I still feel bad for Riley Philthorpe. I am the Riley Philthorpe guy. I was before you. I'm not sure if you were before me, actually. Don't get it twisted. I was before you. I was the one. We were both on the train early. I know that. Yeah. But Dawson, yeah, just quieter down the stretch. Looking back, I didn't realize Dawson got the three votes in a losing effort against Jamal round eight. Did not recall that at all. And I didn't think he deserved I forget who I did think deserved it. Knowing how Geelong works, probably, probably someone we'll be talking about later. Yeah, they had a lot of guys in the 40s. But instead of Dawson, the winner for number 12 is Tom Green, who, along with Sarong and Neil, you put up there as the most effective stoppage player in the league. Another 22-22, despite missing four games, he tied for second in the best and fairest at the club. And he's another one where his absence was really, really apparent. In those four games he missed, 
He was suspended round six, which was really disappointing because that was in Canberra. And then he missed rounds 18 through 20 with a hamstring injury. Which round was it that he was watching the game with the fan club? Was that round six then? I want to say it was round six, the Anzac round. I feel like it was, because that was like a late afternoon game. I feel like it was earlier in the day. Did he miss another Canberra game or? I have to remember now where they were in rounds 18, 19, and 20. Quick investigation here. Did they play Gold Coast in Canberra? Yeah, round 19. Maybe that was the one. I want to say it was round six, though, now that I think about it. Yeah, it's it seems right. Yeah. I'm going to try to do some searching, but I believe it was round six. Average nearly 15 contested possessions, which led the league, and 32 disposals. I think it was... You do think round six? I believe so. He's another member of the three-vote loser club in 2023 for the round eight loss to the Bulldogs. I remember that just being a fun game. Yeah, and getting that over Bontempelli is no joke. I think, was that a Canberra game as well? I think it was. Yeah, it was. Makes sense. But we, we knew how complete this Giants midfield could be if everyone was healthy. And for much of the year, Green, Canelio, and Josh Kelly all were. And there were games where Canelio and Kelly were the most important to tag. And because Green had so much work done right in the center of the ground and right at stoppage, it's hard to put a tag on him. It's hard to have an extra man there, especially... When you got the sixes coming off the bounce, so he's one of the hardest players to stop in that spot of the ground in the league. By the way, how old is he? 22? Yep, 22. Turns 23 in January. I also thought he was older. And I also love that he's an ACT local and that he's got that part of the Giants fan base along with him. The only fear I think the Giants fans could have is, oh shit, what if Canberra gets a team? Yeah, that's the only thing. I mean, that's... That's not the worst thing to have to worry about, honestly. Especially because it does seem pretty unlikely. Unfortunately, I feel like Canberra seems like the most obvious Team 20 candidate, though. Is there one game in particular, or, or like a couple games that you think of with Green as just having like, like these monster showings? I, I mean, in, in both their finals wins, he was spectacular. 17 contested possessions in both of those finals wins, both on the road, obviously, make them even tougher. Round 24 against Carlton, too, which was... Basically a final for them. Yeah, God, it wasn't for Carlton, but it was for, for GWS. I didn't think the midfield was going to be the concern in that game. And he did his job at two votes from a 20 contested, 35 disposal game. Just these stats jump out on the page the instant you see them. I mean, remember the circumstances there were also different with what was at stake or not at stake for Carlton. Did they fold out anyone in that game? I don't think they held anyone out of the midfield in that game, unless Walsh was, was Walsh hurt then? No, Walsh was, that was Walsh's first game back. So Green just outworked him. But it's still, in, in terms of like, what was at stake, you know. And as the resident Eagles member, I must say, Oscar Allen, speaking of other number 12s, I am, I am very glad that he was named one of the co-captains, by the way. It's Oscar Allen along with Liam Duggan. Yeah, he's, he's been awesome. Like, I am not an Eagles fan, and I would run through a brick wall for that dude. And I mean, the way he's spoken about his commitment to the club and how the club ended up playing their best games when he was the stand-in captain. And he's primed for the role, and I'm glad he got it. But on now to number 13. This is another pretty obvious one, thanks to Clayton Oliver's injuries. And also, when you have your best goal-kicking season ever to the tune of 76 of them at age 33, you kind of deserve that recognition. It's Taylor Walker. Other good candidates besides Oliver that should get some credit, Taylor Adams, Ollie Florent, Jack Vinda, Lukosius, Luke Ryan, Luke Shuey. That was kind of a long list, like, players that you normally expect in there. Shuey in a lot of years before this one is last. Adams in a lot of years as well, sidelined by injury, and he's a swan now. That's going to take some getting used to. I know. Like, there are some players, you know, even when they've been at one team for a long time, it still doesn't phase you too much to see them in new uniforms. Yeah, like, I, I think Josh Dunkley kind of. He was never the, the number one guy in the West, so it makes sense. But yeah, Taylor Adams not being a Collingwood is going to be going to take some getting used to. Yeah. And Lukosius just, just had some weird games at the start of the year where he just had this ridiculous goal accuracy from long range. He would be amazing or non-existent. It was, it was weird. But Taylor Walker just didn't have down games, did he? Uh, the only game in which he was held goalless 
was Showdown 53, round three. And then in Showdown 54, he kicked seven and got the Showdown medal. I find it hard to believe that he had never been named an All-Australian before this year. Just the body of work he'd put in, the leadership ability that he has as well, I think particularly 2017 before it all went to shit for the Crows. But finally, we would have to say a later stage in his career, he broke through. Yeah, I like what he's been able to do over the last couple of years, the way he's kind of defied your kind of conventional aging curve. And they've got other pieces around him now that are tall, capable marks as well. Darcy Fogarty remains a very accurate kick for goal. Riley Philthorpe is getting there. You got guys further down like Lockie Scholl who should get there. But at his age, the text remains the focus of their forward third is amazing within itself. And that it's to the point where he finished second in the Coleman on the highest scoring team in the league speaks volumes. He had 19 goals this year against the West Coast Eagles, by the way. Both of the top two in the Coleman benefited from playing West Coast twice. Not a coincidence. Now, if you took out games against the Eagles, would he still have won it? Well, Charlie Curnow, didn't he also have 19 total against the Eagles? Yeah, I mean, like, if you took out those totals for those two, who else was, like, in the mix is what I was asking. Oh, okay. Good point. Nick Larkey also played West Coast twice. How many did he have against them? He had one really big one against them. Because Larkey had 71 goals. He had eight goals total against West Coast. So that puts him at 63. He would have beaten them out minus West Coast then. Oh, yeah. Because Tex would have been down at 57. Kerno down at 59. Now I want to go back and make this whole table. I mean, especially if you take out the bottom two because he's part of the bottom two. Then, yeah, Larky would be kind of your adjusted Coleman, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if that's like the most. It's not a very scientific way to do it. Yeah, I'm sure we can go off with better ways. But it's worth mentioning. But going back to Tex, he also had a five goal performance in the round 15 loss at Collingwood, which was just another one of those games where they had a shit quarter and it killed him. We've gone over it so many times this year where I, don't I feel like like it's honestly just annoying and repetitive if we even keep hammering it home. It was so frustrating how close the Crows got to finals is the big point. And hopefully as a lot of the list around him matures, they can get there next year. If there's any team that goes from out of the finals to top four next year, I would take Adelaide over Geelong to get there. And my, my prediction with the Crows, like I've said, is percentage goes a bit down, but they win some closer games and they do make finals. Number 14 is Tim Taranto. One of the shorter lists here. Number 14. Second would be Callum Mills. Then we also mentioned Miles Bergman. Yes, Miles. Thank you. I'm learning who the Bergmans are. About fucking time. Still working on Jake and Josh Kelly. Does the Adelaide advertiser know who um, Miles Bergman is yet? Remember they mislabeled him as Jason Horn Francis? Oh, yeah. And then, and then we also threw Jordan Ridley into this list, but it's it's Toronto. He had a phenomenal year. It's, it's a clear hierarchy there. Ridley fourth. Bergman third, damn good year for him. Mills second and Torano first. Say what you will about Torano's kicking accuracy, some of his disposal efficiency. He proved his worth in one year at Richmond. And yes, he is among the top 150 players in the league. It's funny to me that Richmond finished in 13. And yet you can still confidently say, oh yeah, Tim Torano, that trade's completely worth it. Torano and Hopper. Yeah, Hopper, despite some of the injuries, I think that just speaks more and more to Toronto's value. It's just like, imagine how good that pick will have to turn out to be for Richmond to regret it. I am really, really excited to watch Toronto and rest of Richmond playing under Adam Uze. Do I think they're a finals-bound team next year? No idea. No, really, but I, I just think there are too many other good teams, so I think they'll be interesting. And what I love about where Toronto's best performances were was that he had this four-round stretch where he got three votes in all four games. The first one of those, round 11 against Port, he kicked four goals, including one where he literally said, holy shit, about his own kick. That was fun. I, I like one of the most underrated modes of the year. And then the next three were all close games, which had been the sticking point for Richmond going back a couple years as they can't win close ones. In Toronto's best games near the midpoint of the season before their bye, they won those close ones. The first one of them coming back against the Giants as well. A 36 disposal nine clearance outing where he kicked a goal and they ended up winning by a single goal. Oh, he was great that day. That was, I, I know we talked about what Shea Bolton and Marlon, or 
I know Marlon Pickett was also a monster down the stretch. There. Pickett had the winner in that one, which, I mean, Giants fans should have seen it coming. And that was another one of Bolton's good games as well. But Toronto took that one over. There was also another great close game performance that he had. Another one of his better scoring ones. Do you remember this one? Uh, looks, looking at the list here, uh, round 19 against Hawthorne. Would you not have remembered that one right off the top of your head, though? I think I was out of town when it happened, but I remember watching it. I remember a couple things about that game. Huge comeback. Great play from Baker and Taranto. I think that was Matthew Coltard's first game as well, their midseason edition. And he was important down the stretch. Oh, no, I was at home. I remember watching that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The huge fourth quarter comeback to win by a single point. I, was it? Did Baker have the winner? I want to say Liam Baker had the winner. But Toronto had three goals in another one of his top contested games. And a, and a big part of Richmond's pressure game as well. Their top players are also some of their best pressure players in terms of Toronto and Bolton. And even with Dustin Martin going more forward at times, they've still got that strong midfield pressure. And yes, looking at the match report, it was Baker who had the winning goal. Hell yeah. I also am indebted to Taranto because he was an early fantasy draft pickup for me this year. I kept him as captain a lot, and I won our All-American Draft League in my first year playing. So thanks, Tim. It's it's funny because remember, I if I had faced anyone else, I would have been in the grand final, and I think I would have won that grand final. I still really believe that. I think we hypotheticaled that in its clavicle. Squeeze, 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 Number 15, Sam Taylor. This was a pretty easy pick. Uh, I mean, with respect to Noah Anderson. Respect Noah Anderson in particular. I think that's the clear second there. Club best and fairest for the Suns for the first time. All-Australian squad. Sam Taylor would have been in the All-Australian 22 had he been eligible by playing one more game. But Sam Taylor, you can put in that Tom Stewart category of, you know, best defenders in the entire sport. And while Stewart is more of kind of a free defender at times, not playing strictly on a man assignment, Taylor is the best one-on-one defender in the league. And the whole unit has improved around him. And I think he's got to have left a really strong impression in order for that to happen. You know, it's funny because at the start of the year, I had seen this team as like, you know, defensively as Sam Taylor and, uh, well. A motherfucking, uh, uh, down, ham, uh, a fucking sandwich. Sandwich. Well, Jack Buckley coming back definitely helped. He was a good secondary guy. Harry Himmelberg played a lot in defense after the first part of the season. I guess I would say, what, the final two thirds or so he played mostly in defense? Uh, something like that, yeah. And there's another guy that we're going to mention uh, later on in this whole players by number thing that that is worth a shout out as well. But Taylor's there above the likes of what James Sicily and Cal Wilkie. Oh yeah, as the best one on ones of the league. Did Cal Wilkie? I think Wilkie also made the All Australian team, right? Yeah. But respect to those guys. Taylor's better. Callum Sebastian Nelmus Wilkie. That's hell of a name. N e l m e s is his middle is his second middle name. That's a new one for me. But yeah, it's it's Taylor. I'm I'm guessing that second middle name could have been like his mom's maiden name or something. Well, now I know what to put in for his passwords. Oh yeah, if there's ever a burner account that's like Nelmus44, <laughs> we know who it is. Or Seb- Sebastian Nelmus. It's really not that hard. Make burner accounts that don't have a name that could easily be late to you. To go up against the top one-on-one assignment on a regular basis and still average five marks and nearly eight contested possessions is pretty amazing. After Taylor Walker got a good start against him in round 18, he put the clamp on him for the last three quarters, and meanwhile, the Giants kicked into gear offensively. Round 18, now that I think about it, was one to go back and look at, but Taylor beating Taylor, I guess, was the start of things that swung the game back into the Giants' favor there. Somehow only got three round low votes, which is another indictment of the voting system not giving enough love to defenders. He got that for a best on ground performance the next round against the Gold Coast Suns. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having our own round low vote. Live from a garage or something like that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We have gone on a lot longer than I thought we were going to about these, but it's been good discussion. So I think what we need to do here, we thought maybe we were going to split this up into two parts. I think we need three. Yeah. But if we really want to get this to a third of the way, I guess we need one more. 
because a third of the way would be like 16.66. So let's get number 16 here and stay on the Giants train with Brent Daniels. Wouldn't it be 16.33? Oh, no, it would be. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Okay, darn, which means I can't do the 0.33 repeating, of course. I've got 16.66 repeating, of course. Well, that's better than we usually do. All right. A year ago, the pick here would have been Sam DeConing. I had a strong case for Cam Rayner. Other candidates include Dan Butler, Max Michelini, Archie Perkins, and Ollie Wines. Max Michelini, one of my favorite first-year players this year, plays well above his size in that Adelaide defense. And even though we thought they were going to have some real depth issues, he stepped up playing against bigger and better targets. But Daniels is one for whom I really advocated because when you think about how Greater Western Sydney went about winning this year. It was because Toby Green had free reign. Why did Toby Green have free reign? Because the return of Brent Daniels, along with the acquisition of Toby Bedford, allowed them to have great play on those flanks. And that was a spot where previously Toby Green had had to take up a lot of time and it limited some of his goal-kicking chances. That's no longer the case. And I also really want to credit Daniels after missing all of 2022 to have the season that he did. Top 10, in the club best and fairest, despite coming off big-time hamstring and Liz Frank injuries, and played his best against some of the top teams in the league. You know, part of that group of some of the more physical forwards, I think of Jesse Hogan is really fitting that category as well. Having Green and Hogan being big targets there, Hogan ended up being just a big mark all over the ground, and his accuracy was a bit shaky at times. I also didn't realize Daniels himself hadn't scored more than 11 goals in a season before, and that was through the full 26 games of 2019. In 2023, 20 games, 26 goals, while also having career highs in a lot of other respects, disposal averages, being more involved in terms of tackle pressure, more of a contested player. So I also didn't realize that he's still only 24. I thought he was older. I thought he'd been around the Giants for a lot longer. Yeah, but yeah, there were, but Daniels was one of two players this year for GWS that came back after missing all of 2022, the other being Jack Buckley, and both had their important contributions. I know I'm talking about performance against Shalong a lot, but that's because I know, Ethan, you would be able to probably recall them. He had one of his best games against Geelong in that win at Cardinia Park in round 11. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was that, and that was also, that was really when he took off for the season. Him and, oh, who else? I mean, Who else was big that game? I think Jack Buckley was important, and someone else was like, really, we're giving up a goal to this guy? Jake Riccardi? Yes, and then he really played a great rest of the season. Yeah, Riccardi. Yeah, and it was annoying because the broadcast was, you know, Toby this, Toby that, because it was a milestone game for him, and it was like, it was one of their more balanced team performances. What game was that for Toby Green? Was that 200? Yeah, I think 200. But Daniels was just as much a part of the story there. Daniels with three goals from 19 disposals, 10 contested, 10 score involvements and seven tackles, and had another game that was just about as strong in their elimination final win over the Saints. How much is the league going to be able to adjust to Adam Kingsley's Giants in year two? I think that's going to be a fun question. I think this team has the youth and pieces to be really strong. I think... They won't have the advantage that they had last year, which, you know, sneaking up on people. And it was only really, it was only starting around that win against Geelong that they really took off as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, their chief weapon was surprise. I guess now there's more fear, but less surprise. Uh, ruthlessly efficient? I'd say, yeah, they, they have ruthless efficiency. How about an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope? I, I'm not sure about that. I don't, I don't know enough about like their team's religious affiliations, so can't can't give you a ton there. I mean, they're they're not like they're not the Greater Western Sydney Nephilim. Biblical deep cut there, very deep. Um, are we just about ready to wrap this episode up, Remy boys? They know us. Okay, I just wanted to check what what was the date of the last episode that we released before this? A while ago, I know, but like, what what was the date? It's been a bit. I think our last one was the the fixture special. Okay, but like, what date was that? The 18th of November? Okay, so the streak was well underway by then. The Detroit Pistons streak? Yep. I have decided 
that until this streak ends, which could actually, I think there's a decent chance they beat the Nets, who are going to be on the back-to-back. But um, I, I'd i like to think that... Um, I mean, I've decided that I'm going to be a Pistons fan, at least through the stretch of this streak. Yeah, I'd just be super positive, like, ah, well, they lost, but they tried really hard, and they even had an eight-point lead at one point. Tate Cunningham continues to score like it's nobody else's business. I don't, I don't care about that. I just care that they work hard and try their best. These are not seven-year-olds. I know, but I'm just trying to sleep all optimistic. They are coached by a man who coached a team to the NBA Finals a couple years ago. Okay. Also, Kate Cunningham kind of looks like Eric Andre, who I saw live last weekend, so that's cool. Oh, right. Wait, so when did this Piston streak begin? Uh, their last win was the final Saturday of October, October 28th. Damn it! They do have a more recent win than the West Coast Eagles women and the Bulldogs women. By the way, great women's finals, by the way. Really enjoyed watching that and really getting into things this finals campaign. I credit Coach Donnie Hess for getting me into with some of the aspects of AFLW and also some really cute moments in the grand final presentation for the Brisbane Lions as well with some of the interactions there. I know that just with both of our schedules, it's a bit more difficult to be as invested in the women's game as the men's, but I want to get at least proficient in really talking about the differences between men's and women's footy. I'm a huge fan of just how of how high the pressure was in that grand final in particular. With that, though, we're a third of the way through this, and I guess this means that we've got two more episodes after this in the calendar year, and really, I guess, season two. So... Thank you for all the support that you're continuing to give us. Thank you to any of you who may be first-time listeners as well. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Americans Footy. Individually, I am at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. Individually, I am at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is sleeping next to me. He is on Instagram at cat named Brian. He won't be sleeping next to you for much longer, though. You got to get out of here. Yeah. support.